Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Cade Massey a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, where his research focuses on judgment under uncertainty, or how and how well people predict what will happen in the future. In particular, he studies people analytics, or how to predict who will perform well in the future. Kate is the co-host of the Wharton Moneyball podcast, and for many years he studied talent selection at the NFL Draft which frames our discussion in advance of this year's draft next week. Our conversation starts with Cade's work in the NFL with data, character assessment, and performance measurement. 
we turn to decision-making lessons, including the importance of independence, understanding objectives, tracking decisions, and overcoming algorithm aversion. Along the way, we touch on stories from his work with Google, Wharton's MBA admissions, and Teach for America. We close with advice for allocators and insights for this year's NFL draft. Please enjoy my conversation with Cade Massey. Cade, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Delighted to be here. Why don't you take me through your areas of research? I started out as a pretty much traditional decision-making guy. I was doing a PhD at the University of Chicago, and they have one of the longest-standing decision-making programs there. And then I got pulled a little bit into behavioral economics. That was kind of, in some sense, the dawn of behavioral economics. It was the late 90s. I was there when Richard Thaler moved to the University of Chicago. I'd been there one year in an MBA program. And I took his PhD program the first semester he was there, taught a behavioral economics PhD seminar and a drugger. He allowed me to come in and took a couple of buddies in there with me and kind of got pulled in. He's a decision-making guy as well, but he really had been pushing this behavioral economics frontier. And it kind of took me in the direction of working with data and archival data. It's a little bit different angle for a decision-making person, but that's where behavioral economics was going. So that's where I went. And I was always interested in We call it judgment under uncertainty, but I think normal person would call it forecasting, essentially people's predictions of what's going to happen and what pushes those things around. And within that world, I've been interested in the impact of detecting change in non-stationary environments and how that affects people's judgment and whether people are good at that. And I've been interested in motivated reasoning, how much when I want something to happen, does that affect my belief about its likelihood of happening? That whole forecasting world has always been interesting to me. And as I've migrated into what's become known as people analytics, forecasting and people analytics is essentially performance management or performance evaluation. Can you tell how good somebody is at their job? Can you predict who's going to be good at a job next year? I mean, that's all judgment under uncertainty. It's just applied to to personnel. So those have been the chief interests of mine over the years. And what are the key fields that you've applied it in beyond the research studies? The people analytics world really blew up in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Google was ground zero and the tech world really kind of bought into this. We need to improve HR decision-making by being more evidence-based. And I was fortunate enough to cross paths with Laszlo Bach pretty early into that effort. And so was spent a fair bit of time in and out of Google over the years. And it was a two-way street, for sure. We learned as much from those guys as they were learning from us. I think they had a great group of folks in there. Financial services was probably the second industry to pick up on that. They really got into it. It's another place where where talent and human assets are the most important assets, as opposed to a bunch of capital laying around. But the industry that I've really spent the most time with it on is sports. And I had written this paper back in grad school on the NFL draft, and that Pulled a little bit of interest out of some NFL teams. And then in the same era that people analytics was blown up, sports analytics was really blown up. And baseball's been doing this for a long time, but then basketball caught fire and then football is slowly getting there. And I end up working more with organizations in professional sports than any other industry. So I know we're going to cross over this upcoming NFL draft and investing over the course of this. And if there's one commonality that we've talked about that's clear, it is 
this idea of trying to identify the next generation of talent. And as you're talking to whoever it is, someone in financial services hiring people or teams team that you work with for the NFL draft, how do you start thinking about the analytics component of, let's just say we've got a draft coming up for the NFL? Well, the first question is whether you have any data or not. And a lot of organizations who want to get going in this space or want help don't yet have the data. And it's a big hurdle because it's not like you can buy it from somebody and have a good basis for your decisions. Often you have to start collecting data on your process. And that means you're not going to know anything for three, four, 10 cycles. And that might be enough to demotivate you from collecting data at all. So the first conversation is, you got to start writing stuff down. You got to start recording the judgments, the decisions. You got to start tracking the outcomes. And then we can talk about analytics five years from now. So in each of those fields, let's just take it with financial services, the work you've done and the NFL, what ends up being the relevant data? So let's start with NFL because there's so much more data. So it's an easier conversation. The big challenge as we move from sports to non-sports organizations is what are the right data. So let's talk about that in one minute. In sports, this is we're just run over with data. It's been a wonderful thing, and it's blown up even more recently. We've got baseball sabermetrics got started with just box score stats, but now we've got motion tracking. It's just a complete revolution in what's available. Teams don't yet use a lot of motion tracking in football personnel decisions yet. I mean, they're gonna, it's just around the corner. They're beginning to build a base of it. It's the same thing I was just talking about. They don't yet have the history to say, when we see these numbers, it means this down the road. So we're stuck with, well, what does college production mean for NFL production? So how much did the guy play? How did he do? What kind of teams did he play for? And then of course the combine. And those are really the two main sources of information. If you're talking about the NFL draft, those are the two main sources of information. You've got production on the field from when the player was in college. You've got some combine numbers, and then you've got anything you can uncover about the player's character. And this is an interesting feature of analytics and professional sports. Every sport, every team realizes character is this hugely important variable and really tough to get at. And the best teams are really working at making that more rigorous and more quantified because it's generally not that way. So how do you go about doing that? Like the combine also, for those who don't know, I mentioned mention what the combine is. So the NFL combine has almost become its own sporting event. For years, it was held in, in Indianapolis, and they would invite the top, I don't know what it is, 150, 200 draft-eligible players. The NFL would invite them. They get up there, and they measure them in every possible way. So height and weight and basic vertical jumps and broad jumps but then also some speed tests. The classic one is the 40-yard dash. And then they have position-specific drills that they put them through. And while they're doing all of these things, everybody in the league is there. This gathering, it's, it's of scouts, but then really it is the gathering for the year. So coaches are there, front office folks are there, scouts are there. And everyone's watching these things. They're sitting in the stands watching these things play out. And the teams then take those data back to their buildings and crunch the numbers and argue what it means. The other thing that happens in Indianapolis is that they interview players. And this it's a phenomenal process to watch. They have an informal set of interviews. They just kind of grab some guys and sit them down in the hall and talk to them. But then they have these very formal ones where they schedule them to come through, sit down in a hotel room. And the team might have 15 guys in there. They'll have the coaches. They'll have personnel guys. The general manager might be in there. 
this kid will walk in and will sit down and they get, I forget whether it's 10, I think it's 10 minutes. They'll get 10 minutes to ask them anything they want. And then the horn will blare and the guys will rotate and a new guy will come in and they'll ask them questions again. And they'll do this for hours, multiple days in a row. They're basically trying to poke and prod these candidates and learn everything they can about them. And then they go away and they fold that into whatever process they have for deciding who they want to draft. Kind of curious in that interview, how did the teams think about what makes for a good interview for on their own side, let alone like what the players are saying? Now it's really hard. I mean, it's really, really hard. One, it's time constrained. And then the guys are coached up, the players are coached up. And so it's tough to get at something real. But then fundamentally, it's almost an impossible task. I mean, we know from years of research on the academic side that job interviews don't predict a whole lot. The main thing they predict is whether I like you and whether we can get along interpersonally. That's not necessarily job-relevant information. And I think the same thing happens in these interviews, that coaches and personnel guys might get a feeling for whether they like the guy, whether they believe the guy, but whether that feeling translates into a reliable signal about his NFL performance is a very different question. I've only sat in that room with one team, and so I can't say for a fact what other teams do. I know people try a wide range of things. Some people have brought in industrial psychologists to sit in there and observe or prepare test questions. Some folks try to be a little bit more antagonistic. And the team that I sat in there with was much more, let's walk you through some plays and tell us what you see. So they try to put something as game relevant in front of them as possible. It's like a mini work sample of sorts. And that's good interview practice. A work sample is about the best thing you can do for an interview. And I think the best teams try to get at that. But Ted, honestly, do these things predict anything? Do these interviews predict anything? It's, it's extraordinary the resources teams put into this. All the coaching and executive power of the team is in that room. It's extraordinary. And I don't know what signal they're really getting out of it. So if you extend that question of that interview to that character assessment, how do you go about putting data in and around making a good forecast on that lens of character? The only way to do that is to try to systematize and quantify what is fundamentally a subjective opinion. So a couple of recommendations. One, instead of making a holistic judgment, you need to decompose it. So this is something we know from judgment and decision-making, that if your judgments are more reliable, if you break them down into the component parts. So instead of saying, well, this guy's got a great character, he's got, or he's got weak character, Let's break it down into work ethic, resilience, coachability, whatever the elements are. You decide what the elements are, but break it down to those elements. And then you've got to turn the subjective thing into something quantified. And so the best practice is to start scoring these things and then track them over time. And it's the same thing we talked about at the top, Ted, about creating data. You, the teams have to create their own data because there are vendors who sell tests and they'll tell you they're good tests. Fine collect the data and see whether they actually predict something. But these scouts, one of the main jobs these scouts have is to go out and talk to coaches, talk to former teammates, talk to anybody they can who has some window into that player's character in order to get an assessment. So this is an important part of the scouting business. And then the question is whether that judgment can be rendered in a way that's reliable. And the only way to know that is to write it down in some quantified way and then compare it to outcomes long-term and then tweak the model. The first time you do it, it's not going to be right. It's always going to be noisy, but can you tweak it and refine it, learn from experience and improve it enough over time that it gives you some signal in the process. 
Are there aspects of that, call it data-driven scoring system character assessment that you've seen be predictive in the NFL? That's really proprietary stuff. So you have to be kind of on the inside. I've only been on the inside of a few teams and the teams I've worked with are always trying to refine that. They're always improving it and they realize it's hard and they realize that they're not there yet. Baseball is probably a little bit ahead. Baseball's been working on this in this kind of systematic way longer than football has. And it's remarkable how similar the two efforts are. And I think the baseball teams are a little bit better about making it systematic. That's even like, I'm talking about some of the best organizations out there. That's one of the main things they're working on. Like this is one of the frontiers and it's, it's just really hard to get. Everyone recognizes it's important, but it's so hard that even the best teams and even in the most advanced sports like baseball are still trying to figure out how to do it. So if we pull back from this and talk a little bit about financial services generally, you'd intimated, you know, there's this first question of what data are you trying to gather? I would ask the question, what type of data ends up becoming relevant in these sort of people assessment situations? So this is the big challenge as we move from sports to non-sports organizations, because what is a performance measure? And the most common performance measure is, what do you think, Ted? So you, you happen to work in industry, so you, you guys can keep score pretty well, and you guys got good benchmarks. And in investment management, there's a pretty clear way to look at that. You could probably complicate it for me and tell me all that goes into those things. But at least in that industry, there's a pretty clear performance measure. In most industries, there's not such a thing. What's the modal performance measure in all industries? It's what your supervisor says on some like five-point scale. That's the performance measure which is not going to get us very far. And we're not going to be able to do a lot of analytics on it. And it's just rife with biases. So I think the best organizations are working on finding new and better performance measures. And there's not going to be one. There's going to end up being a suite of these, each of which is noisy, but maybe as a collection, we get a little bit more signal. But some of it's going to have to be created. Some of it's going to have to be stuff that we're not currently tracking. So for analytics, if we're ever going to bring the kind of high-powered analytics we're seeing in sports outside of sports, we have to get a lot more data than we have right now. So we have to find what are those data. My fantasy on this, it sounds so boring, but my fantasy is basically meeting analytics. And the idea here is what's the most high-frequency event in organizations? It's probably a meeting. What's one of the main units of work that we do? Probably a meeting. And if we could actually track people's performances in meetings then we might actually have some data to play with. And actually, it would help also get at this question of, we tend to evaluate individuals as if they work independently of everybody else, that they just kind of show up at work. What they do doesn't have consequence for their next-door neighbors, and their next-door neighbors don't affect them. But we know that's not the way organizations work. People are hugely influenced by those who are around them, and yet we try to go in and treat them completely separately and independently. If we look at something like a group activity, whether it's a project that lasts three months or a meeting that lasts an hour, if we look at enough of them and if we measure it closely enough, we might eventually start being able to say something about who's contributing to good outcomes by this group, who's impeding good outcomes by this group, what combination of people create good things in groups, those kinds of questions. But it takes a lot of data. So I'm imagining we're a long way away from that in a lot of meeting context. Let me tell you a way in which we're not. If we'd have been talking a year and a half ago, that would have been pure fantasy because who's going to record all these meetings? As a matter of fact, there's a conference room at Google. This almost sounds dated now, but just a couple of years ago, I was hearing about a conference room they had created at Google 
with video cameras on everybody in the conference room. They could code what everybody said, who was looking at whom, who was paying attention, all of these things. You would give permission for this to happen. For people who wanted to, they could give you a breakdown of what happened in that meeting. And this sounded phenomenal and really interesting. This was a room at one of the most sophisticated organizations in the world. Fast forward 24 months, and now what we're doing right now, you and me, has been happening everywhere for everybody for the last 14 months. Every gathering that has occurred practically has been recorded. We could get transcripts of these things. The folks who host these meetings are trying to even assess where our eyes are looking. And so we can break into some of the nonverbals. And so what used to seem like complete fantasy has become like here, it's here. Now, the data aren't yet available. It's a lot of data, so it a lot of computational power to deal with it. But that is here, and that is going to be a thing. And we're going to learn a lot from it. So once we have the data set that we want, how do you go about making sure that the process of taking the data and working towards a decision is a good one? That's kind of where my work with teams has gone over the years. When I first started going, we had this research on the NFL draft. It says, in short, don't be too sure what you know about these players. And by the way, that suggests that you should probably trade down if you're in one of these top picks. That was kind of our shtick. And that, so we walk in, we have this advice. And that advising may or may not go well, but then over time, if you find the right organization and you build a relationship, it grows into something a little bit bigger than that. And that is, okay, how are you making these decisions anyway? Like, what's the process that you assign these scouts and they bring back some data and you aggregate it in some way? And so there's just a lot of steps here. You can imagine some organizations do that well and some organizations don't do it as well. So this is just basic group decision-making. And I suspect there's good parallels from the NFL over the asset management, investment, investment teams or whatever it is. How do you solicit and aggregate a bunch of opinions into an overall decision. We can talk about some good practices and bad practices, but now we're talking about a very general practice. And it has been a fun area to work in because some organizations, even really good ones, get some basic things wrong. So the simplest one, let's start with this super simple one, is find ways to keep those opinions independent from one another. So two examples. A few years ago, we re-engineered MBA missions at work. So I had been there a couple of years and the dean asked me to visit some with the head of admissions. They had been talking about, let's try to improve this thing. The dean thought it might be helpful with it. And so we spent a couple of years re-engineering this thing. And we believe we have the best admissions process in the world and super proud of the work we did. Some of it's sophisticated, some of it's simple. One of the simplest things we do historically, if an application was read by two people on the admissions committee, the second person who was reading it saw all the opinions of the first person. And they would log in. They actually couldn't avoid it, Ted. They would log in and it was right there on the screen. And we know that that's going to bias that second reader. And so the very first thing we did was just say, okay, one, they protested. They thought, oh, we're not biased by those things. And we ran a little data and we found out, yeah, you're hugely biased by these things. Everything we know from psychology suggests you would be. And so we, we cleaned that up. But I've had the same conversation with very sophisticated baseball teams that do so many things right. And then we have a discussion about, okay, you've got a scout who is given an opinion about a player. And then you have a second scout. You send someone in to give another opinion. Do you let that second guy see the first guy's opinion? And how hard do you work to keep them from talking to each other about the player? And it's hard. It's Even when they see the wisdom of it, it can be hard culturally 
to start breaking that dependence. But it's one of the simplest things you can do to improve group decision-making is to build in more independence between opinions. The guys who do the stats on this will tell you, you know, it depends on how correlated these guys are, but two opinions, if they're uncorrelated, it's like you get two opinions. So great, you got two people worth of information, but if they're correlated even a little bit, you start really killing the value of information. And very quickly, you get it down. You think you get two opinions, you're really getting like 1.1. You're really killing the information value if they're correlated. That's rule number one, Ted, in terms of good group process. What's rule number two? Rule number two goes a lot of different directions. I think a lot of groups don't know what they're looking for. They haven't laid out the objectives. And it can be a painful process to stop yourself and say, okay, we have to talk about what we're actually trying to do here. I worked with an NFL team one time and they were trying to make a decision on which receivers to try to get in the free agent market. So they have a set amount of money they could spend in free agency. This is when you go out and get someone who's already been in the league. So this isn't the NFL draft. Different way to acquire players. These are veteran players. Set amount of money they could spend. And they were trying to decide, do I go you know, with this guy or that guy? And they were different kinds of players. There were some guys who played slot. There's some guys who played the wide out position. And so we said, well, let's find out what the coaches want. I mean, what do they need? What do they care about? And so we did just a simple little survey, tried to get this. And we discovered that they all had different opinions. Some of them wanted the slot guy. Some of them wanted the wide out guy. Some of them wanted two decent players. Some of them wanted one all-star player. And there was no consensus. And it's real hard to make a good decision for the organization if you don't know what, what you're trying to actually maximize. So that's number two. We've talked about a little bit, but one of the real rules about this stuff is to write it down and keep track. And a lot of times I can give you some principles, but you're going to, if you monitor how it's going and you compare the results against outcomes and compare your forecast against outcomes, you can improve and refine and you'll learn things that we're not talking about up front. And the best organizations realize it's not that you set up a process, you hit go and you never revisit it. Part of the process, part of a good group process is how are we going to monitor this process? How are we going to improve this process over time? So you've got to go in knowing that you want to learn, you want to continue to learn. And to do that, you've got to track these things. You got to write things down. You got to revisit the results at the end of the year. One of the organizations that we've taken the most lessons from on this is Teach for America. So these guys hire kids straight out of college, basically, not exclusively, but mostly, and that was the original model, to go teach in kind of underserved populations. And they generally spend a couple of years doing it. And then they go on and do something else. And so they're trying to develop leaders, Teach for America is, but they're also trying to serve teaching in these communities. But as a result, they're hiring thousands of people for the same job every year. It's one job. Now, they put them in different places around the country, but it's one job. Thousands of people. And they get tens of thousands of applications. And they've been doing this for like, I don't know, almost 20 years now. So it's the ideal learning situation if you're so inclined. And these guys are very much inclined. So they have turned into one of the most sophisticated people analytics organizations out there, and especially the admissions process. And what they have done religiously for all these years is they make their decisions and it's a group process. And then they see how it goes and they see who comes and then they see after one year how they've done and they see after two years how they've done. And so they can compare their decisions at the point that they make the offer to what happens down the road and they can see how they're doing. They said this thing early on when I heard them talk about it, they said this thing. They said, we know we are not measuring what actually matters. Like we're imperfectly, we say we want this thing, but that's only a proxy for what we actually care about. We want to create like leaders in the world. 
Well, we only have proxies for that, and we know it's imperfect. So they are saying up front, we know it's imperfect. The only way to get closer is to write down the data, compare that to results, revisit it religiously, and refine the process, and go again. And I think that's kind of the gold standard for all of us making these group decisions. Now, I know some of the work that you've done with the NFL from that original paper you wrote as a graduate student had this great insight that one player relative to the next one drafted in the same position, it's almost a coin toss. And yet, you know, as you just described, teams tend to overvalue those higher picks. What are the obstacles that when a team, when an organization has in front of them the playbook to make it work the right way, and yet they don't do it, they don't follow the prescribed model that should make it work what comes in their way of making good decisions? Well, I think one of the main dynamics here is what Kahneman and Lavallo called the inside view versus the outside view. Our 52% number is very much an outside view. It says, look, the base rate here is 52%. And that's across a lot of teams over a lot of years. And so I'm sure about that number. But of course, there are some ones and there are some zeros in there. And so any given case is either going to be a one or a zero. And we can't really argue with you if you say, well, by God, this guy on this year, I am certain is the guy. I have to have him over the next guy at his position. I'm like, okay, well, if you're that sure about it, I mean, my 52% number is about history, right? Thousands of people, but that one case, I don't know. And so that's the inside view is you've got all the particulars of that particular guy or that particular woman, if you're in an organization hiring that. And that base rate number I've given you is pallid in comparison. And so it's, it just carries less weight psychologically. It's almost something you have to believe philosophically to end up giving it as much weight as needed. And otherwise you get pulled. It's, even in the NFL draft, these guys who believe in analytics and believe in the trade down philosophy and believe in uncertainty, it's a lot easier to believe in that stuff in January than it is in April. Because between January and April, they're studying film, they're having debates with their colleagues, they're putting guys on the board in the, in the building. And then by the time it comes to April, they think they can draw really fine distinctions. In fact, they can draw really fine distinctions between the different players. It's just that they're not as predictive as it feels like it is. So this is a very general problem. It's inside view versus outside view problem. And I think it's one of the reasons we have a hard time using models in these situations. One of the other things I'm always curious about in these situations is we understand in this business and in all decision-making theory, the importance of this independence of thought, or in the football case, you don't want the scouts talking to each other about a player. But oftentimes, certainly in the investment world, there is a decision maker, there is a leader of the team, a portfolio manager, and then you have the analysts who have different thought processes. And there's all the, you know, whether you call it politics or compensation arrangements or whatever it is, there are all these reasons why the analyst wants the portfolio manager to like them. How do you kind of balance fostering the independence of thought with a culture that needs to have people communicating with each other? For sure. And I recognize that that's a tension. And we're not a bunch of little robots that can perform the same regardless of our work conditions. And, and culture makes a huge difference. And frankly, the organizations who have had the best luck with analytics and professional sports have been those who have blended that with culture. It's not analytics or culture. It's the organizations you can say it's analytics and culture. So... The short answer is you can't be pure. You've got to make compromises. But the fact that you have to compromise, Ted, means that you have to push it as much as you can, as often as you can. 
And so you've got to find ways to keep independence where you can, because you know that ultimately you're going to break down the independence. So postponing information sharing as far into the process as possible is something we talk a lot about. Because eventually those guys are going to sit around at a table and argue about a player. And so everyone's going to know how everyone else feels about it. But if we're having that kind of information sharing and awareness in March instead of November, we're ahead of the game because people have been able to independently collect information for a longer period of time. The other bit is that, and I love this example you're giving. I'd love to hear more about it from portfolio managers who, who do it well. How can they license disagreement? How can they encourage people to fight with them? Actually, the best I would hope would actually reward analysts who disagree with them. That should be part of the reward system is to disagree and poke holes. You might have to, I'm sure some organizations do this, and why not have these kind of red team people assigned where they're going to criticize any investment decision and poke holes in it. They're licensed to do so because that's their job in that setting to do so. So those kinds of things are ways you could get at this a little bit. But but I want to own up to not being a purist about it. But the fact that you can't be a purist about it means that you got to find ways to do it all the time. If you hang out with people in decision-making, people who study this for a living, we do this. It's kind of ridiculous how often we do this. We'll be speculating about something. We'll say, what was that number? What was that year? How many of that? And sometimes we'll say, okay, everyone come up with a number before you say it. Just come up with a number by yourself before you say it. We're like little geeks because we know how much, if we're trying to get to the right answer, we want to preserve that independence as long as possible. Yeah. And the portfolio management side, there's also this balance when you're playing against the markets of needing to be sufficiently confident that you can be different and think differently because that's the only way to add value relative to the crowd, but the humility that you might be wrong. And so to have that in the same person, you know, and I imagine that that has to play out across disciplines as well. I love that tension. I love that balance. I mean, it's really, really hard and rare, but when you can find it, yeah, that's one of the great things to be pushing for. Absolutely. This other angle that you've taken, you wrote a paper on what you called algorithm aversion. And just from taking, you had this model that said, hey, 52% of the time, the players can't distinguish one player from the next. And you have a model, the outside view based on that. But there is this bias that people are averse to using algorithms. So what is that about? The lead author on that is Berkeley Dietvorst, who was a student at Wharton a few years ago. And another author is Joe Simmons, a colleague of mine I've done some other work with. And we all probably come at it from different places, but I came at it precisely because of this thing we're talking about. It's precisely the experience of going into an NFL team with a model and running into the resistance of using the model. And I felt like it was universal enough. I'd seen it in enough different places that it deserved looking into a little more closely. And what we found when we got into it was it's not that people are averse to models universally. It's that when they see models fail, they're harder on models than they are on people. So there are tasks, I suppose, where models can be perfect, but not many interesting tasks. So most of the jobs you and I are interested in, every model is going to fail. Every person is going to fail some of the time, maybe a lot of the time. And the observation is folks are happy using these algorithms until they see them fail and then they want to get out of them. And they're much harder in that respect on the model than they are on people. And I think this explains what I've run into in teams. I think it explains it in a lot of different domains. I heard when we wrote that paper, I heard a lot from people in financial services talking about how models get used in your decisions. And it seems to be a kind of a universal battle. 
one of the tricks we came up with in a follow-on paper was you can take the edge off of that at least a little bit by letting people inside the model, by letting them participate a little bit in the model. If you give a little control to those you want to use the model, they're more open and more interested. And it's a big enough effect, at least in the places we studied it, it's a big enough effect where even if it makes the model a little bit worse because you're letting somebody kind of play with it, and you've already optimized the dang model, you know, you don't need anybody to play with it, but let them play with it, let them degrade it a little bit, that's fine, if it means that they're more willing to use it. Because in many of those domains, the models are so superior to intuitive judgment that even a degraded model would outperform judgment without the model. Have you tried to study how much you can degrade the model in those instances before you might as well just not have the model in the first place? Well, we kind of went the opposite way. We wanted to know how little we could let people play with it and still get their buy-in. And that was what was the most interesting thing about that second paper is that we kind of surprised ourselves by how little we could let them influence the outcome. Let's just play with some numbers. Let's say you give a people a chance to use a model and half the people take it up and half don't. And the people that take it up easily do better than the ones who don't. So you want people to take it up. And then you let them move the model around by say plus or minus 10%. The take up jumps up to maybe three quarters. So you get a lot more people using the model, even though they make it a little bit worse. And you think, well, if I got 75% at 10%, I wonder what would happen if I let them do plus or minus 5%. You get the same 75%. You don't get any loss, even though you cut their influence in half. And then you can take it even further. We knocked it down to 2% and we barely lost anybody at all. So it was the act of participating rather than the amount of influence that made the difference. And I think this is very general advice for people who are selling models or analytics you got to let the users in a little bit. You got to let them kind of put their hands on it, have some influence over what goes into it if you want their full buy-in. All right, my mind's spinning about like thinking about a quantitative asset manager with the theory that hey, you should never touch the model, but the point is you should touch it all the time as long as it's not impacting the actual result of the model. If you can let them in a little bit, and there's an open question in different models, you probably ruin a model pretty quick in some cases, so you may not want to let them touch just anything. But yeah, I'd be curious to know, in what way could you let a decision maker in that domain tweak a model? Another element of it is it's a long process. So maybe when they first see the model, they're averse to it, but they need some time to get used to it. And one of the experiences we had is that when we started using model with admissions in the first year, we said, hey, it's just advisory. Y'all do what you want to with this thing. It's advisory. And they move around a fair bit. And then every subsequent year, they move around a little bit less. And part of it is we improve the model, but part of it is they get used to the model. And so you give away a little more control early on to get their buy-in. They get a little more comfortable. They like the model better. They want to influence it less. And so there's a longer-term process you can keep in mind that will degrade the model less. So I think everybody listening probably has some experience with admissions to some school. So I'm so curious, what are the kind of inputs into a model that would determine whether you'd accept a candidate or not to Wharton? So... Mostly, Ted, we haven't changed the inputs. And this is what I think we surprised the administration a little bit. Whenever they sent me to go have these conversations and start talking with these folks, and by the way, the leaders there, in fact, the head of admissions there came out of financial services. And so she was, she was all about this approach in general, which is really helpful. But I think they thought that we'd come up with some new signals, some new silver bullets. We find out, oh, we'll run some numbers and we'll find out when the person says this or if we see them do that, that's really what tells us. And it's very much not the way we went about it. It was very much, 
You might think of it as process. It's very much the the blocking and tackling of decision-making. What we did was systematize what they had been doing. All the inputs, especially in the first few years, all of the inputs into the model were the exact same evaluations that they were doing for years and years. It was a reader looking at an application and scoring an essay or scoring a letter of recommendation or scoring a transcript. That's all it was. We're taking those inputs, which have been going on for decades, but we're putting them into a model and we're now going to weigh them systematically. Everybody's going to get the same weight and we're going to push that against some objectives that we've sat around and talked about as a school, what we're looking for. So it's the systemization that makes the difference. And this is a big lesson in decision-making. It's the benefit of models is really boring. The main benefit of models is that they're more consistent than humans are. There's just so much noise in human judgment that it degrades the whole process and models ring out that noise. In the work that you've seen in financial services, I'm kind of curious if there are other things that have come up that you found intriguing along the way. I'm very intrigued by the way models are used in the investment decisions, but I don't think that's very far from what we've been talking about. I gather that the tensions are the same as the tensions I see in other places. The reversion to models are the same as I see in other places. I'm always entertained by how much subjective matters affect decision-making in finance. I think some folks think that it's going to be this purely meritocratic place or purely about the numbers. And then you get in, you start hearing stories about investment committees. that sounds a lot like power and politics. It sounds like some other industry. It's just, it feels to me mostly like it's not that different. What I think is true is that because human assets are such a big part of financial services firms, I think they are, they think harder about these HR practices and they're more open to improving HR practices. And so I think we're seeing some advances there, but I don't think it's qualitatively different from other industries. If you were distilling advice that you wanted to give someone who's investing money with money managers, an allocator to managers, what would the advice be from a systems perspective of, based on what you've learned from all your work, here's how you should think about getting better at picking the talent that is the money managers in your portfolio? I'm fascinated by this question, and I know very little about the industry, but it strikes me that it's the exact same exercise. I'm listening to some of your guests. Was it Colette Chilton Williams talking about her money managers a few weeks ago? And here's a person that's had that much success, and she's got whatever it is, 25 or 50 managers, and she turns them over real slow. And she talked about, well, it's probably a year from first conversation until I put them in or whatever. I'm like, what is she doing in that year? How does she decide? How does she and her team decide? I'm fascinated about it. I mean, I, mostly, Ted, I want to go out and, and talk to the folks who have a demonstrated track record of doing this well to figure out what they're doing. And what I heard her say that I appreciate is that she talks a lot about process. And so you want to see record and you want to see position by position, some details, but you're also talking a lot about philosophy and process. And that sounds exactly right to me. One of the things we come back to again and again in decision-making is to not be too distracted by outcomes, to focus on the process and the inputs and what you knew before the decision was resolved and what's your opinion of the process before the decision was resolved. And so I would think that that would be a critical part of it. But my first questions are about how much variation there actually is out there. I'm kind of skeptical of significant variation in these kinds of domains. There's a term that a fellow named Matthew Rabin 
a behavioral economist coined. He just dropped it into a paper years ago. It hasn't caught on, but it's a good term. Fictitious variation. And it's this idea that even chance processes, if you look at the outcomes and then rank them, it looks like it's a meaningful ordering. It's like there is going to be somebody who has the most heads on 100 coin flips. There's going to be somebody. And so you can rank them top to bottom, and it looks like there's this difference, but it's just, in Raven's term, fictitious variation. So my first question is, running the numbers and looking real hard and rigorously at it, how much variation is there in that industry and the money manager's ability to reliably outperform? Knowing that people are biased to look at outcomes and evaluate outcomes, what are some of the tricks that you've seen be effective to allow people to stay focused on process? It's so hard. And one, the main thing, one of the only things I know of, Ted, is the same thing I've said already three or four times, that's to write things down. You have to write things down. We trick ourselves. It is human nature to misremember what we thought once we know the outcome. We think we would have understood that. We think we predicted it right. There's just study after study that show this. And so unless you write it down, so there's incontrovertible evidence what your decision was, you're less likely to learn from it. The other thing is a lot of times people aren't writing down the outcomes at all. It may be five years before we know what happens. And so are people still around? Do we still have the same bosses? Or do we still have the same portfolio? Often not. So that's the one tip I have that's clear, and I want to acknowledge it's really hard. And we spend a lot of time on this in our decision-making classes in school, just trying to educate people, but it's a hard process. All right. Well, this is going to come out a little bit before this year's NFL draft, and I can't have you on without going right to the heart of the matter. So we've got this draft coming up. We've got four quarterbacks looking like they're going to be at the top of the draft. What is interesting to you about what you're seeing happening in this year's draft? Well, the consolidation of quarterback talent at the top of the draft is one of the, it seems to me, stories of the last 10 years or so. You see quarterbacks now just drift up the board. A couple of years ago, Kyler Murray came out. He came out of Oklahoma, and he was a highly rated baseball player. And everyone thought he was going to play baseball. And then he said, eh, maybe I'll play football. And we were speculating, this is like December, January. If he plays football, I wonder how high he'll go. Might he be a first-round pick? No, no way. Sure enough, okay. Then as soon as he announces, very clearly going to be a first-round pick. And then all spring, you just watch him drift up the board until he's the number one pick. One of the reasons for this is I think the league has slowly begun to appreciate position value in the draft. It just makes more sense to spend draft capital on positions that are ultimately more valuable and quarterbacks are the most valuable position in the league. So all teams don't follow this philosophy and it's been a slow movement, but it seems like slowly the league is learning that the higher value positions, forget the players, just the higher value positions should be drafted more highly. And the best example of that is quarterbacks. And so now this is going to be the most extreme version. We're going to have four guys in the top 10 or whatever. So that's the first thing that jumps out to me. And it's just a manifestation of a trend we've been seeing for a while. If I had to say, Ted, I mean, if you want to take a real hard line here, I would say, I don't really believe this, but the interesting bit is how much consensus there is around Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence is the consensus number one. And if I had to short something just on principle, <laughs> I would short Trevor Lawrence being the long-term best quarterback in this draft. Just because it's fun because there's so much consensus. Like we're arguing about guys two through five. No one's arguing about number one. And to be honest with you, my project with Thaler on this came from the 99 draft. And they were talking about that draft and they were comparing it. It's a great quarterback draft in 99. So this was Tim Couch, Donovan McNabb, 
Dante Culpepper, Keely Smith, Cade McNown. There's like five guys who go in the first round. People talked about this is the best quarterback draft since 83. So 83 was Elway up top, Kelly in the middle, Marino at the end of the first round. But in between there, there's Tony Eason, Ken O'Brien, and Todd Blackledge. And so between, listen, literally between Elway and Marino is Ken O'Brien, Tony Eason, and Todd Blackledge. And so whenever they were comparing the 99 draft to 83, I didn't think they were learning the lesson from 83. I thought the lesson from 83 should have been, it's really hard to know what order these guys are in. Because in 99, everyone talked about Tim Couch. It was consensus Tim Couch, and then argue about the next four guys. Consensus number one, and now let's argue about the rest. I'm like, well, if you pay attention to 83, that's not the right story. That literally launched the project. And if I wanted to just map it on to the 2021 draft, I I hate to do it because I like Trevor Lawrence, but I think that the sharp prediction would be, okay, I'll put some chips on shorting Trevor Lawrence. I'll take the field over Trevor Lawrence. And if the quarterbacks are the highest value position, what positions have gotten devalued over the years as analytics has looked at the draft? So generally the interior positions on both offense and defense, the interior offensive linemen and the inside linebackers, it's moved around some. I mean, safeties are having a little bit of a comeback, but in general, people go something like, for a long time, it was edge rusher as the obvious next. And maybe to counter the edge rusher, you need a good left tackle. And now they've kind of moved out to the wideouts and cornerbacks, shut down corners and explosive wideouts. So we've changed our opinion some, but honestly, I think it's going to continue to evolve because only now are we beginning to say, what difference does it make whether you have an all pro wide receiver out there versus a couple of good starters? Can one guy who's extraordinary Let's flip it around. If you could have an all-pro at one position, where would it be most valuable? And to answer that, you really need to understand what is the impact of someone who is exceptional at that position on all the other positions. And we've not been able to say that historically because we haven't had the data. And increasingly, we can say, okay, now we're watching these guys move around. We know when you have a player of that caliber, how much attention he attracts and therefore how much space it opens up for other people. Or flip it around. When you have a cornerback who can cover as much space as some of these guys can, then it frees up other people to move away. That's saying if you put a guy who's sufficiently good at that position, it's especially valuable because it has these knock-on consequences for the other position. That's exactly the kind of analysis you really need to answer the question. We've never had it before, and we're finally getting there with motion tracking. So what's happened with running backs? (laughs) It's been sad, hasn't it? It really is sad. I grew up on Earl Campbell, and there's nothing I'd rather do than watch a college football running back. And they've really been devalued in recent years. I think a couple things. The most important thing is that we've come to appreciate how dependent their performance is on other components, and especially the offensive line. And the simplest way to think about it is you, you shouldn't think about a rushing yard as being you know, attributed to a running back. It's an offensive line and running back accomplishment. And we've just never done that before. We've always thought about it as the running back. And it's become very apparent, and especially, again, this is something that motion tracking has helped us understand, how extraordinarily influential the the offensive line is in the running back's production. And so it leads us to do things like partition a run between pre-contact and after contact. And so you can start parceling out the individual contribution of the running back And what we find is that there's just not that much variation in the part that the running back brings. It's not zero. 
but it's not as much as fame and celebrity and compensation would suggest. What's on the leading edge of your research next? This question we've been talking about, about individual contributions to teams, I think is the most interesting thing. I'm fascinated by those who contribute to the group outside the box score and whose teams tend to do better. Teams, and I'm speaking very much in you know, non-sports domains. So the classic example is Shane Battier. So Michael Lewis wrote this article in New York Times Magazine 10 plus years ago now on Battier's contributions to his teams, despite the title of the article is a no stats all-star. So this guy was an all-star. Eventually he was appreciated, even though he wasn't a big scorer or even a big box score guy at all. So what does that look like in non-sports teams? Are there people out there? And I think we've all experienced some of them who just make positive contributions. And my projects with them tend to go better than my projects without them. What is it that they're doing? And can we figure out how to identify it and value those people? Because those are the kinds of things that don't typically get promoted. They might not be rewarded at all. They're probably underhired, and yet they're really important. So how can we get at that? And this is back to my little fantasy about meeting analytics. You need a lot of data to get at it, and you need some pretty sophisticated modeling to get at it. But it's one of the questions I'm most interested in, and I think technology is finally getting us to a place where we can start looking at it. And so that's probably the thing that I'm most interested in right now. Do you have any hypotheses about the characteristics of those people? Nothing that's not obvious. The thing that seems most universal to me when I just reflect on my own experience with teams are those who give, those who are team first, those who are low ego. Those are the things that people can get hung up on principle and what they're contributing versus other people. And it can really get in the way, especially because we're pretty self-serving in what we see. And so in my experience, those who are the biggest contributors are those who are basically always giving a little bit more than average, who aren't worried about it, who aren't keeping score, and who are basically putting the team's whatever, experience, outcome, before their individual. Cade, super interesting. I can't let you go without asking you a couple of closing questions. So what's your favorite hobby or activity Outside of work and family, I'm not even sure what work means for you, but. <laughs> the one I would exclude because of the description for work is data visualization. It's a big part of my work. I'm quite happy to do that anytime, but that's pretty worky. The only hobby I have these days really is it seems to be tree trimming, Ted. I just spent a lot of time cutting trees, hauling branches. I spent all day yesterday hauling branches that were knocked down by this ice storm we had so we can burn them. But we moved on to a little piece of land west of Austin this summer and it's been kind of nonstop. It's been a nonstop agronomy of one kind or another for the last few months. What's your most important daily habit? I would say meditation. It comes and goes some, and it makes a big difference when it's here. And I'm forever trying to keep it in, in a more regular way. And in my experience, even just a little bit of dedicated time, if I can string a few days together, it starts making a pretty big difference. So when it goes away, what's your biggest pet peeve? <laughs> yeah, you tend to have more of them, right? When they're away. I don't think I have a lot of pet peeves, but my wife reminded me the other day that it drives me crazy when people lean back in an airplane seat. And it truly does. Some of my worst behavior has been when people have leaned back into me on, on the airplane. What's your favorite book? I've got too many loved books to have a favorite book for sure. 
But I think I probably only have one book that I can say, I feel like it changed my life, which is a heck of a thing to be able to say. I wish there were more. There probably ought to be more. But I think there's one that I can say that reliably about. And it is Team of Rivals, the Doris Carnes Goodwin book about Abe Lincoln, Team of Rivals. It's because of what an extraordinary portrait she paints of Lincoln, at least as reported by her, as put together by her, just such an unusual and extraordinary man. And in particular, talk about no ego. He was living proof that you don't have to have ego to accomplish great things. In fact, quite the opposite. A lot of what he accomplished was because he had so little ego. And for him to have demonstrated it so starkly, repeatedly, as reported by Goodwin, was just mind-blowing to me and really a lovely demonstration. And I think we all need that kind of reminder. What's been your biggest mistake and what did you learn from it? Oh, Lord, Ted. I don't know that I would have a biggest, but the pattern that I've tried to uproot that I can name, having gotten myself in trouble a few times, was really coming down on somebody or getting way bent out of shape about somebody or something before I understood it. Assuming that I knew why something happened. This usually happens when it hurts you in some way or really gets at you and you jump and you react before you understand. And I have made a little progress on this. It's just something that comes to mind because when it happens, I'm so aware that it's a mistake. So hopefully after that happens a few times, you start learning how to navigate it. Kate, what teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? My mother said this thing late in life, and more importantly, she lived it. She said she just want to talk about things that matters. And I think this idea that, you know, spend time talking about things that matter, get to the heart of things. She said this to me once in the hospital, and we didn't know it, but she was going to die just a few weeks later. And in the same conversation, this visiting minister walked in. And this was back when the Methodist church was debating whether or not to allow gays to marry or whether or not to let homosexuals be ministers. And it was kind of a conversation that was happening in the church. And this retired minister walked into the hospital room. And my mother had just said this thing to me sometime the previous hour. And this old boy sits down and he wants to visit with her. And within the first 30 seconds, she was like, tell me, do you think they should ordain homosexuals? I mean, just like right into it. She didn't want to bother with the superficial stuff. She had limited time and she wanted to talk about what matters. And we all have limited time in some sense, but it's nice to kind of get to the heart of the matter when you can. All right, Kate, I got one more for you. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? This is going to sound really airy-fairy, but I think to pay attention to your own experience, to pay more attention to your own experience and pay attention to when things are working for you, when they're not working for you, and to honor that. I think we can spend a lot of time out of touch with how things are impacting us. And that is something I wish I'd known earlier. Kate, really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, sir. Quite enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. Thank you.